Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the public event this evening um, on the challenge of agricultural development in Africa, Lessons from China. And the event is revolving around a book that has been just come out, uh, which is um, co-authored and led by Professor Li Xiaoyun, who's the um, Dean of the College of Humanities and Development Studies at Beijing Agricultural University. Professor Li Xiaoyun has written extensively on issues around agricultural development in China, on agricultural development uh, between China and Africa, and, he's a, and about issues of participation in development. He's got um, vast practical experience, not only in China, all over China, and uh, in various African countries. And we're very lucky to have him here this evening because um, he's always um, seems to be in the plains, somewhere between China, Britain, and Africa. So we've caught him and got him here, and we're delighted. So he will be introducing some of the key controversial findings from his book, and this will be followed by a panel discussion. And I'm very pleased this evening to have on my far right Professor Henry Bernstein, um, Emeritus Professor at the School of Oriental and African Studies and um, editor of the Journal of Agrarian Change. Um, Professor Bernstein is very, very well known indeed for all his work on the political economy of agrarian change um, as well as social theory and more recently he's been looking at issues of globalization and labor. Um, next to Professor Bernstein, we have Professor Tandika Makandawire, who's the Chair in African Development at the London School of Economics in the Department of International Development. He was former director of UNRIST, uh, United um, Nations Institute for Social Research, and also uh, former director of the Council for the Development of Social Research in Africa, more commonly known as CODESARIA. He also has done an extensive work on development theory, economic policy, and social policy in developing countries, and political economy um, in Africa. And lastly, we have um, Professor James Putzel, who is a professor of international development at the London School of Economics. He, for many years, directed the Centre uh, for crisis states research which was funded by the Department of International Development and he's also written um, not only about issues of crisis states but um, also about um, agricultural development issues specifically in relation to the Philippines. Um, okay, so I'd like to open this event. We'll first have an introduction of some of the key findings of the book uh, from Professor Li Xiaoyun and then we'll have um, brief comments and question, um, quest issues raised by our three panelists. Um, can I just uh, let you know that there are leaflets outside uh, for the book if you would like to purchase this at a discount. Uh, these are here. Also, after the event at 8 o'clock, we will be transferring to the old building on the fourth floor for a reception. So you're almost welcome to join us there. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Jude. And uh, I'm oh, sorry. 
Uh, I'm quite uh, pleased to have this opportunity. Loudly, sorry. Okay. Uh, I'm quite uh, uh, quite pleased to 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 be invited to share my uh, what I call the uh, preliminary, very preliminary findings uh, by using very Chinese uh, uh, perspective because um, uh, very often we see the uh, we see the problems in Africa and I would I would not really uh, strongly see that kind of a Eurocentric perspective but I would certainly see uh, that um, and I use uh, somebody called uh, source source thinking. Uh, debate, and uh, um, and I'd like to use this opportunity to uh, to introduce. You can speak into oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, <coughs> sorry. Uh, I would I would like to just um, uh, share with you that um, uh, first uh, that why uh, why. Uh, agricultural development in Africa matters today. And it was really issue of 1950s, 1960s, but, but it's gone, you know. And there are two critical issues here. Why is the poverty, another one is food security. And uh, if, we, if we look at the poverty, and since last uh, 30 years, and the level of poverty in Africa remains high, above 40%. And it's also interesting to see that um, in the same period of time, uh, you see everything actually has become kind of a net importer of uh, major agricultural commodities and uh, stable food. And the, 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 at the same time, we see the African, and the Af most African countries, I would say here in so African means uh, sub saharan African countries. You know, I'm not going to generally see all 54 African countries, you know, it's really focused on the sub-Saharan African countries. Yeah. And, uh, mm, and if, you look, say, if you look at all the uh, sub-Saharan African countries, and uh, most of those countries are so-called uh, agricultural-based uh, agricultural countries. And... Uh, sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, too loud. No. It's too loud? No. Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. So, and uh, for the, for the agriculture-based uh, countries um, that um, if, if we look for two issues here, one is the poverty reduction and another one is for the, uh, for the food security. And agriculture itself is essential. To develop agriculture itself is essential. So that is something which today and uh, and over the last thirty years, um, okay, yeah, so it's disturbing for this. So over the last thirty years, actually, uh, since the since the agricultural productivity has been really really stagnant, that uh, and that actually leads to what I call the agro Afro pessimism, and we are not and people have been not very optimistic about African agriculture. So and. Uh, Secondly, I like to also um, to see um, why you know, and the people always argue that um, China is one country, you know, Africa is fifty-four countries. You can't see anything between China and Africa. So, and I fully agree for that. You know, this context completely different, politically, social, culturally, 
geographically, you know, it's completely different context. And uh, and the recent over recent years, particularly last last uh, ten years, that um, there has been increasing interest to draw the lessons and experiences from African and uh, from China, and particularly looking for the agriculture. And the reason for that is uh, is that the linkage between the agriculture and power production and food security that is critically, and how the growth. And how the agricultural growth have actually led to a significant power reduction and level of improved level of food security. And primarily, if you look at if you look at the data, and people talk about power reduction in the sense of 30 years, but in fact, if you look for the data. And from 1978 to the middle of 1980s, and actually the 50% of the power reduction result was already achieved. And this would mean, at the same time, from the end of the 1970s to the middle of the 1980s, the China has the highest agricultural growth rate. At the same time, the highest economic growth rate. And that actually indicated quite clearly. The association between agricultural growth and power reduction, and in that kind of direction, we see for countries like China and for the countries as agricultural-based countries to reduce poverty, to reduce poverty, and to 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 stimulate and promote growth, to develop agriculture is essential. So that is empirically has actually approved. And as I mentioned, that、um, uh, we look for these two very different contexts, politically, socially, culturally, and geographically. And it seems that it's very difficult, to,、uh, in any sense, to say that we could we could compare this scientifically. We could compare China and Africa. It's not relevant. But the issue is for for policy lessons. For the development, we could still try to say, look, you know, when China started this reform, and China look for the experiences from Singapore. You know, you could also argue, well, you know, China cannot compare to Singapore; it's a very tiny country. And how you could so this is nothing you could compare, but things that we could always share the happens in this continent, in that continent, in this country, in that country. So the issue is that how the learning takes place within globalization context. And、uh, and we will try to build this kind of uh, uh, lessons learning between China and African, and、uh, we found that、um, uh, we 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 certainly can can share with African、uh, in many ways. The firstly, I like to see well, you know, if you look for historical conditions between China and African, is 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 is. Is absolutely different, you know. If you look for the structure of crop structure historically, and African China is different. China is very much rice weight based system, and it, this kind of system has been has been has been southern and southern being actually developed. And very luckily, that in 1960s, 1970s Green Revolution, when the Green Revolution globally took place. But China was in that kind of global,、uh, uh, that kind of green revolution scheme, 
not because supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, by the Ford Foundation, by the World Bank. China was not supported by either of those kind of organizations in the 1960s. But China was supported by its own research system because it's the, it's the structure. Structure fits the Green Revolution context. Green Revolution started from rice by the ERI, by the Rice Research Institute called RRY and two, and from the weight from the from the cement in Mexico. So China was exactly that. But if you look for Africa, it's very different. You know, in Africa, and uh, over over sixty percent, and over uh, only thirteen percent in sub-Saharan Africa actually uh, planting area for rice and wheat. Until now. In 1960s, 1930s, even low, even lower, and uh, and and the majority and the dominant uh, um, crops still today is the millet, sorghum. Of course, maize is a special case. I will talk about the maize, a special case, you know. So somebody said, "Well, this green revolution—the reason why the green revolution surpassed African because of structural reasons, you know." And I'm, I'm not going to agree completely, but I would see that contribute partly the reasons why, you know, this. And secondly, we see difference between the Africans' agricultural system has been very much interrupted by colonizers to, into a cash crop, you know. And even today, over 50% of African fa- farmers grow important crops to meet the domestic of need of the Western parts. You know, these are the ways and how the traditional structure has been, dis- you know, disrupted. And the the rice and the weight-based farming system in China has never been disrupted by any kind of outside forces. And you see, the, 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 the due to these kind of interventions and that due no agricultural structure of settlers' large-scale large commercial farm and African smallholder system coexist in most sub-African countries for this. And, uh, and, but in China, in the smallholder agriculture dominance. We don't have, you know, and never had this kind of big, big farm unless you've got very small uh, percentage of land being used by the state farms, you know, and in the very remote areas like Xinjiang and the Heilongjiang areas. And, uh, and lastly, we see the um, very different uh, um, land use pattern, uh, which is extensive land use and uh, and quite intensive land use. You know, this is a system, and also the, mm, and also the dependence uh, on the stable food, on non-stable food, mm, which in China is very much depend on the rice and the wheat, so the stable food. But in Africa, you might see it very differently that, uh, mm, and they would have a lot of kind of much diversified food sources than Chinese. So those are the things we can see, quite historically, and uh, very differently, and. Uh, and, uh, and we see, based on that kind of difference, you know, what, what really the uh, things makes the contemporary, uh, contemporary the performance different. And now, now we would see that um, uh, state and policy issues. And you know, from China, you see the, um, the agricultural strategies within the whole overall strategy and the food crop within the agricultural structures and the diversification of planting and agricultural field infrastructure like irrigation and agro-industry, agro-industry policy capacity, particular policy capacity means that the state capacity 
and the implementation and scaling up, all these issues, what I, what I could see constitutes a kind of what I call state and policy. And those makes it quite different uh, with what Africans, what I, I call that. Um, and if you see the agenda of, of African development over the last 60 years, you start, uh, and after independence of the African state, you know, you see start from state building, for 10 years or 20 years state building, and to the state awakening, 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, by structural adjustment program, and then back again to the today's, uh, what I call the um, new agenda uh, of good governance-based state back agenda. And uh, we call all this crisis state and uh, fragile state. Different terms actually implies the, what I call the state back agenda, again, of uh, today. And all this agenda in Africa um, has actually been very much driven by outside donor thinking and never been homemade uh, system, which like what China uh, has been um, carrying on based on its own cultural, political, and social structure. So that's something which um, <coughs> I would say quite differently, and also the market reform, almost China's slide earlier, end of 1970s, beginning of 1980s, and most African countries start mid of 1980s in a very different ways that the, the market reform started in Africa in a very rapid, very radical manner, that all kind of state building down 1960s, 1970s gone, because that was a more or less disaster. And what China's market reform in China was done in quite incremental way and very piecemeal way, gradually. And many people ask me, say, well, you know, agriculture in China was much based on the market reform. I said it's wrong because the green market only completely opened in the beginning of this century. So you see the control, you know, this whole system actually not really immediately open, subject to a chaotic <clears throat> situation that the private sectors, market sectors, market players actually are not ready to take over uh, what state actually has been had been carrying on. So that was very differently. And as somebody said, very you know, like same consultants are available to trot all the same all list of solutions and priorities. You know, and uh, for instance, the new partnership program. You know, this is the Moya actually uses the word to, to, to see about these issues. And, uh, and uh, lastly, um, uh, we actually try to see uh, the smallholder agriculture between China and Africa. And uh, both China and Africa are all smallholder system. And over 95% of uh, total our land uh, in China actually by the smallholder. And it's more or less similar to African, most sub-Saharan African countries, you know, this. And the, the, the controversial issues uh, actually are first, uh, mm, and whether uh, China's experience is very much intensified system. And it's intensified in terms of very much land-intensified system with a huge excessive labor input, labor input. And across different climate, 
climate zones, like from from temperate zone to the tropical zones. You know, you see the structure, and then people say, "Well, this is not relevant to Africa." So I think it's extensive land available, and uh, it's, it's, it should be it's subject to our use of mechanized, mechanized modern agriculture. And uh, and uh, we argue for two dimensions. First one is that, uh, and with the increasing land frontier in Africa, which is available, you know, in many various ways, that uh, this intensified agriculture should be appropriate. Secondly, even with the extensive land available, with the lack of capital, with the lack of all kinds of infrastructure, all kinds of capital, in, uh, capital investment available, and it's not possible for African smallholder to get a loan program, to get big money from bank to, 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 to just fund land, uh, to <coughs> finance its agriculture. It's not possible. So it is started, now I, I come back to earlier, uh, classic uh, development economics theory to see, look, when the country is very poor, has no money to, to mobilize through the domestic saving system, and you have to borrow money, at that situation, that the labor accumulation for the capital to, to take off is the essential. It's very simple. And, uh, and I was joking with quite a number of friends to say, look, we have to revisit our old previous wisdoms. 1960s, 1970s, back again for these issues. So, if you see that one, that is debate. So, and we would like to see, look, you know, African probably need looking again the labor issues. And the people say, wow, this is a difficulty, and uh, African is very hot, yeah. African is very temperate, it's terrible, you know, Chinese is, you have maybe different, as in, well, we have also tropical regions, and we have subtropical regions, and many debate for this. And I'm going to raise this issue. Now, secondly, mm, Secondly, and we see the productivity. Uh, and, um, and some of the African countries, uh, for countries where I work, like Tanzania, and uh, the output improvement over the last 10 years has been largely, very largely due to area expansion, uh, not by the productivity. So that explains that you huge expansion of volume of production, but it actually has not led to any kind of significant meaningful power reduction because productivity remains even decline, in decline. And the key issue here is that and, uh, with the increase in population, 3% general in, in all African countries, 3% population growth, and the agricultural growth rate has to be far higher than current growth rate because currently African agriculture in general grows around 3%, around 3%, means 3.5 something you know, averagely. <clears throat> For the highest countries like Tanzania, it's around 4%, 4.2% over the last 10 years, the agricultural growth rate. It's, it's pretty high in the absolute manner, in absolute figure. But you have to consider, you have to consider population growth. Population growth is extremely high at 3%. It's interesting for the labor force growth rate is very high in African countries, which reflects the condition, improvement condition, the health condition, the education condition. So Africa is premise, you know, it's really the place, it's promising in terms of labor supply and all these issues. So what I'm going to say is that 
that actually provide a good basis for for productive pro, productivity improvement, either by the land and by labor, by labor. So that is something coming to again another issue is that um, uh, for the input issues. Now people always argue, and last time I had a similar presentation at RDS, and uh, Mike, Michael Lipton mentioned. Uh, said, so you look, you know, and uh, African uh, fertilizer issue in Africa because uh, they cannot buy it. It's too expensive, you know, and all the issues. Uh, because they don't have, uh, um, I said, well, it's, in Africa it's, it's, it's kind of combined problems because uh, even you have fertilizer, if you don't have raining, irrigation, and fertilizer doesn't work, you know, and therefore you need, you need water. You need water plus fertilizer, you need uh, water plus fertilizer, as well as the farming method, different things. So those kind of things, and I remind me, lastly, I would say, uh, lastly, I would say that um, whether it's wisely, or whether anything which uh, uh, for the Chinese to, to, to recommend and to interact with Africans, to looking for this whole package of social, what I could come back, not farming, agriculture any longer, the social, political, and the, and the cultural package. Because this is no longer just like, like farming tools. It's completely cultural, social, uh, whole package of practices. And the, what kind of interactions between this, those, this kind of uh, uh, exchange uh, in the field of agriculture means. Uh, in the future, so and uh, so, I'm doing the policy studies and development studies. So I'm not really doing other kind of fields. So I would say um, that that provide kind of open area for many fields to interact, debate that between China and Af- Africa, what is positively and negatively and academically, what does it mean for this? So I'm quite happy to share um, and uh, um, and discuss those issues with all field of interest uh, if we have any chance and um, um, so I'm stop here and uh, thank you for your attention. Yeah. Yeah, we prefer to pronounce it Bernstein. Uh, as my cousin David, who's the chairman of the Football Association. Um, right. Jude uh, told us that we have about five minutes, which is extremely short. So I'd written something that would take much longer, so I'm going to have to cut it down. Uh, I think it is on. Yeah, you can hear me? Okay. Okay, I'll speak up. Um, clearly, it's, very, it's a big challenge to try to assess a book of such kind of heroic purpose and comprehensive scope in such a short time. And very often in practice, there are two sorts of issues. One is an assessment of what the book says, and then there is what it doesn't say what maybe one feels it should look into and how the latter would affect the former. Now, having said that, I'm going to skip my own summary of how the book is framed and go immediately into some, uh, very selectively, some specific questions for uh, Xiaoyun and for others here. Um, And 
I find that actually most of my questions are to do with China, uh, but I'm reassured that Tandika's uh, next to me and will offer uh, insights into Africa. Um, so questions about labor and notions of labor surplus. First, I'm very struck by references in the book, as quite often by Chinese scholars, to the inefficiency, inefficiency of small farm production in China. This is all the more striking because, as the book well documents, small-scale farming in China is enormously successful in terms of production outcomes. I mean, that actually is, is almost the spine of the book, in a way, uh, and the position from which... Uh, Xiao Yun and his co-workers look at Africa. So I wondered whether this idea of inefficiency has to do with the extraordinary labor intensity of farming in China, which means that labor productivity, not land productivity, not yields, but labor productivity is actually not that impressive, and in fact the data in the book show that labor productivity in farming in China is not massively superior to that in Africa, although yields are very, very different indeed. So I wondered if that notion of inefficiency uh, reflects the uh, labor productivity and by extension, a very, very important question in China for all sorts of reasons, the relatively low returns to labor in farming. I'll come back to that because if you can get a job in the city, why stay on the farm? That's a very real question. Um, and in relation to this, the book says, well, with subsistence needs satisfied, smallholders appear to be, to be behaving as so-called rational peasants. Now, that rings many bells for me because if they decide, in fact, it's mostly the men who are deciding that they're better off migrating to earn more, then in what sense are they peasants at all? And indeed, the book talks about the feminization of agriculture and the fact that so much... Uh, farm labor in the countryside now is done by so-called left-behind populations, women and uh, much older people. So is this a rationality of peasants to leave farming and go on labor migration, uh, and, or, or does it suggest, should we think about uh, the labor migrants and those who support them as better... Um, disguised proletarians, to coin a phrase that I don't like, but it's shorthand. Um, to reinforce the point of this question, is there evidence that labor migration in China is motivated by and its remittances used for investment in farm production? That is a, a real question. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen some evidence. It's not comprehensive. It's not uh, uh, all pointing in the same direction. But and I hope Tandika would support me in this, this is a classic motif in modern African history, is labor migration, remittances from which are then reinvested in farming, in reproducing household farming. Um, on the labor side, I'm also struck by many references in the book to both African rural labor surplus and labor shortage. Now, I think I can guess why that is happening, but it would be good if 
Xiao Yun could explain how this apparent inconsistency between depicting rural Africa as both uh, with surplus labor and as labor short uh, can appear um, in the book. Finally, uh, hired labor appears in the book's accounts and comparisons of rice and maize cultivation in both China and Africa. I always ask the same question, well, who provides wage labor then in even relatively small-scale farming? And what might this tell us about processes and patterns of commodification uh, in the countryside? Then I was going to talk and ask questions about state-society relations and their effects for state capacities, another very, very uh, big theme uh, in the book. And I think I should just restrict myself here because the book does present a somewhat seamless account of agrarian civilization in China over about the last 4,000 years up to the current, the present day. And a motif running throughout that is how centrally agriculture and concern with agriculture has featured in statecraft. Um, so there is no hint in the book of the massive social contradictions of China's long agrarian history, it's supposed to have had the most peasant rebellions and revolts of any agrarian civilization, uh, none of that. So I would simply ask here, are there any tensions or contradictions in state-farmer relations in China? What are we to make of widely reported, and these are reported officially in China as well as unofficially, rural unrest slash conflict slash resistance, whatever you want to call it, including over land dispossession or land grabs, to use the current uh, trendy term. And I will uh, complete that with another question. I had a little uh, excursus on primitive accumulation, which interests me a lot. Um, and that followed from remarking that the book refers to socialism a few times, uh, but mostly in the context of official discourse in China. As far as I'm aware, it doesn't use capitalism or the, 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 the notion or analytical uh, vocabulary of capitalism at all. But my, and, and that sort of leads to a final question, which also links in with uh, land and with other questions I had, which is that I'm told, and... Um, Xiaoyun is in a very good position to confirm whether this is accurate or not, that there is an extremely long-running, in fact, since, since the household responsibility system was introduced, I'm told this debate has been going on in the party in the government concerning the privatization of farmland in China, privatization of property rights in farmland, hence its individualization. And... I can be a devil's advocate and say, is this not the next logical and or desirable step in forging the conditions of further market-based agricultural development, that is encouraging land markets so that more efficient and successful farmers can more easily acquire additional land? I'd be very interested to hear Xiaoyun's uh, view of this and Asking that question illustrates why I'm sitting on the extreme right of this platform. <laughs>
Thank you very much indeed. Um, over to Tandika. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I won't um, help Henry by answering any of his questions. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I share those same questions. Uh, I find this, this is a very important contribution to, to the library on, of books in English by Chinese scholars on Africa, which is quite a rare commodity so far. And I hope that China can, can produce this book cheaper. And in a but have it accessible let's enough. Here. Uh, but yes, let's have, an, let's have an, a special edition, a special edition of that. Yes. <laughs> um, perhaps I'm just start by saying what I like most about the book, uh, and it comes from. And um, last year I was I was in Korea, and I met a group of Africans who were studying. Uh, they were there on a training program on how you know, on development organized by the Koika, which is the the Korean aid, aid agency. And I asked the lady from Kenya how she found the course. And she said, well, I had, she said she had been to UK and taken a similar course, and she was doing it now in Korea. And I said, what's the difference? She says, well, you see, when we go to UK, they tell us what to do. When we come to Korea, they show us what they have done. And I think that was a very important message. And I think that's what this book does very much, tell you not so much what Africans should do, but what the Chinese have done. And, and I think... One message that comes out very clearly that we need more African scholarship on China directly to have access to this information. And, and that, I think that I thought it was very interesting to see how an account of how China has done what they've done. It's also a very interesting story of, a, and perhaps typical of all cases where you're drawing lessons from one experience to another for, for use by another experience, that they, there's a tendency to either, either um, be very compact or oversimplify or compress history. And I think, as Henry pointed out, there were a number of things that one associates with Chinese agrarian change, the ruptures that you've had and all that, that seem to be mix, mix, uh, missing in the text. Um, there were, just very quickly, with, that, with, any, with, with no particular systematic order, pick up a couple of issues. One issue that um, which raised is the question of cash crop farming in Africa, that colonialism brought cash crop and that somehow that interfered with African agriculture. I think the problem with co co uh, colonial agriculture in Africa was not so much that the product was, a cash, was for cash, is, but that the, the, the product was not a wage good, that it was, it was not a good that went into, into the wage basket of the African, except for Southern Africa where there was an attempt to produce maize for, as part of the wage good. Okay. Uh, and so what we have in Africa, the, the wage basket in much, much of Africa is not constituted of, of products that were sort of, as it were, traditional. And that, I think, is the main problem. It's not so much the cash nature of the product as the fact that this was an export commodity and was not a, a, a wage good. Um, now, Africa, in the account... Um, I normally don't, de don't defend African governments, but uh, let, me, let me perhaps explain a little bit of the discrete charm of the African governments. Um, uh, most of them actually have no clear attitude about agriculture, and over the years it's changed quite a lot. Uh, and I would argue that perhaps one of the, you know, the problems we've had in Africa is that while as in Asia, if, as early as the 60s, no, no, 50s, there was a clear 
there was some idea of the agrarian question. In that case, people talked about either uh, it was land surplus economies, and in Latin America it was the latifundista problem. In the case of Africa, there's always been a confusion about what is the agrarian problem in Africa? Is it too much land? Is it too much population? Is it low technology? And, and, and African governments over the years have, you know, have, have moved from one explanation to one explanation. And, and so you, you, you get some very contradictory uh, processes within African governments' uh, policies. In the early post-colonial period, they, they thought it was as, as a foreign exchange problem, that agriculture was not generating enough foreign exchange. And then this, in the 70s, they said, well, no, it's food self-sufficiency problem, and that we were not producing, not, not, we were not producing enough food, and therefore we are importing too much from outside. And so this food self-sufficiency became the main problem. And today, I think the, we've gone back to the forex problem again. People are talking about commodity chains and, you know, so they, there's no clear uh, uh, view by African governments of what they should do about it. And to compound matters, African agriculture has been very influenced by outsiders, which comes out very strongly in the book. There's a, a, a consistent sort of account of the of dependence of African agriculture. And unfortunately, the outsiders also have us equally confused about African agriculture. They started off in the 60s telling us to get our sector plans okay. Then they changed it was the 70s, you must get your project, okay, which is the McNamara era. Then they said, you must get your prices right. Then they said, no, get your institutions right. And then they said, get participation right. Now they say, get infrastructure right. So there's a whole switch. It changes every five years. And I think the most important lesson I had with China is the persistency of the Chinese to experiment, trial and error, and stick to, your, you know, to what you're learning. Uh, that, you know, I think is one of the, uh, perhaps the biggest problems in Africa, that there is no, uh, the learning process has not been internalized. In fact, much of the learning is done by outsiders, is done for the outsiders and by outsiders. And they have their consultancies, they, do, they experiment, they study the experiment, they write books about it, and but we never hear about it in Africa, we never hear what they found out. Um, there is also, one of the problems is the technology question. Um, which is, again, a recurring theme here. It was, I was fascinated by the fact that during the cultural, really great upheavals of the, in China, the Green Revolution was maintained. I mean, one would have thought that, um, that the, the fact that China still participated in the Green Revolution, despite the great political upheavals, I think itself a very interesting story. How was, how was this protected, you know, under these very dramatic changes of China? And the, the Great question, why did Africa miss the Green Revolution? And there are many explanations for that. One was that there was no appropriate technology for Africa. Africa's, people claimed that because of the ecological diversity, we couldn't find a simple thing as the, you know, the, 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 you know, the Green Revolution around, around, around rice. And, um, but anyway, we, Africa missed out on the, on the Green Revolution. And this might also, uh, perhaps you respond to a question raised by, by Henry, but labor-intensive technologies vis-a-vis land-intensive technologies. That perhaps for Africa, what Africa, at least when the Green Revolution was on, um, Africa was largely a land surplus continent. And the technology which was being uh, proposed didn't make sense. When you, you know, for, 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 uh, it may not be true now for some parts of Africa, which are, labor, which are very high level, levels of uh, population density. But I think the, there is a, a question of 
again, defining what is African, a greater question, and, and, and what kind of technologies are uh, response. The, 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 how much time do I have? Okay. Uh, okay. Finally, industrialization. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's some contradictions in text. When one ha somewhere in the text suggested that Africans uh, somehow ignored agriculture and went for industry, uh, which is the argument you hear normally from, from the people against import substitution. I don't think that's the main headache for Africa. I think, in fact, the main headache in Africa is that the industrialization that took place had nothing to do with agriculture. It did not provide inputs for agriculture. You know, uh, that, you know, we didn't set up uh, you know, tool, uh, uh, factories for making simple tools or for producing fertilizers for the African. So it, it was not so much that we went for industry, but that, but that whatever industry we did was not seen as working you know, in, a, in conjunction uh, with, uh, with, uh, uh, with, in, with industry. And last point, um, the question of uh, learning from others. Uh, uh, usually the people who are you know, sort of the pioneers or those who are from whom you're supposed to learn can suffer from all kinds of reasons. They can suffer from amnesia, they can forget certain things, and, um, uh, or they can suffer from uh, oversimplification, or they may not be willing to share uh, knowledge. And I'm, and I'm pleased to see, see that, at least from the Chinese point of view, there's a willingness to share uh, the experiences. The question is whether there is a capacity to learn on the African side, um, or a willingness to learn from the African side. And, it's a, it's a pity that actually today in Africa, I think there are only two institutions in Africa where they do Asian, Asian studies. We don't study. We study a lot about France and Britain and you know, you know, our colonial masters, but we do very little about, we know very little about Asia. And uh, hopefully this is an incentive to Africans to, to want to read Chinese and read more about the Chinese experience. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and finally, I'll hand over to uh, Professor James Putzel. Okay, thanks. The privilege of going last means that many things that one might have taken up time saying have been said already. So let me just, and also I want to move on to the discussion, so let me keep my comments really brief. Maybe start off where Tandika left off to say, that one of the important things about this book, I think, uh, and it shows in the citations, et cetera, uh, in the apparatus of uh, the citations both to literature and to, to field observations, the importance of the study of Africa and China today. I was quite impressed when I went in May to see young scholars really learning, preparing for field work in Africa, and this is a... This, this goes beyond Africa. It's, it's China emerging more and more as a center for scholarship on development, and I think that's a really important um, um, phenomenon. And the book is an example of, of that. Let me say a few things about what I like about the book. Everybody's asked you a lot of questions, so I, I, I want to put a, a couple of um, points across. The first is that it really underlines in the Chinese experience how central the state has been throughout to keeping agriculture at the top of the development agenda. And, and, and here there's a sh it sits in sharp relief to, the, to really the dismal role of the state in, in most African countries in terms of prioritizing uh, agricultural development. This is not entirely without fault of the donor community, 
because the donors um, come with prescriptions decade after decade, some pendulum swings, and despite a big critique um, mounted by the donor community at the end of the 70s about the neglect of agriculture, if we look at the pattern of lending and aid especially to, to, to um, agricultural production um, programs from the OECD countries it, being at about 12% of o ODA, official development assistance, in, in the 1980s has fallen to less than 2% um, by, the, by the early part of this, um, this decade. Um, so, so there's some responsibility outside. But the, the, the Chinese state, with, as the book recounts, keeping state document number one every year on agriculture has, has kept um, agriculture at the, at the center of attention. And I think this is a very crucial challenge that's presented um, um, to, to, to African states to begin to embark on this on their own, perhaps, uh, in conversation with new Chinese donors uh, and distinct from what's happened over the past 30 years. Um, I wanted to make just a comment. Uh, many people will find it odd, as I did, reading this book, that um, you're comparing China with 57 African states, about a billion people. And at first I thought, what is this? How can, how can this be done? This is really anomalous. Um, but actually, by the time I finished reading the book, I, I thought that it actually contributes something important. Um, Policy-wise, it's very problematic because there's 57 different states making policy, and so the comparison of policy is difficult. But what it does do in taking this kind of look, and, and it, and it recognizes, the book recognizes the asymmetric nature of the comparison, so it doesn't pretend not to. Um, but what is striking is looking at this summary, uh, and I think the summary of agricultural development in Africa in this book is actually rather interesting. And it underlines the still untapped potential of agricultural development across the continent. You know, with the reporting the figures, 30% of irrigable land in Africa has been irrigated. Uh, the, these are very important, the huge potential for the transformation of productive, land productivity of smallholder farmers um, in, in Africa, which the Chinese experience demonstrates. Of course, in very different agroecological conditions. The huge potential for, for infrastructure creation and the complementarities of intercontinental trade that are possible in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so I think actually this broad look offers a perspective that, 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 that is stimulating. I think one of the most intriguing points that comes out of this study has to do with putting um, the, the way in which uh, China has put food security first and the importance you underline throughout the book in, in this regard. The importance of investing in staples production. You know, for the last 30 years or 25 years, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, following the lead of, um, of the World Bank, has shifted the discussion of food security entire, entirely to be provided by the market, despite the fact that Europe and North America have always considered food security at the top of their strategic agenda. Um, Africans have, have moved away from any notion of achieving this, and I think the book underlines in a very interesting way 
the ways in which China um, has done this. And, and I think it's one of the most challenging issues that's raised about, about, about African development. Um, the, um, there's a subtext in the book uh, that's really important and has to do with the constant interrelationship between industrial development and agricultural development in China. And of course, it's the big lacuna in, in, in Africa. And it, just looking at UNCTAD's reports on development in Africa over the last couple of years, we see track the deindustrialization of sub-Saharan Africa. And I think there's a, there's a huge issue to, to, to raise, a big discussion to have about the interrelationship of agricultural progress with, with industrialization. The book points in different ways to how this was achieved in, in, in China, and there's a big contrast with sub-Saharan African experience. Um, there is one, one issue that's there in the book, which I think is quite important, um, because it, it, it leads me to a, an intriguing um, uh, question, and also one big criticism, which I have one minute to make. Okay, so 30 seconds for the question. Um, the, the period before the reforms at the end of the 70s in China was absolutely fundamental in creating the infrastructure and the transformation of human labor, often under very coercive uh, means, in, in, into capital, largely forming the foundation on which the big productivity gains in land, um, pro land productivity, were made after the reforms, with, particularly with price incentives that were introduced. So there was a very pivotal foundation before the re reforms to what China's achieved in agriculture, which is not always noted. On the other hand, to write a book like this, and in particularly with the emphasis that's put on food security, and yet not to mention uh, the catastrophe at the end of the 1950s and into the early 60s with the Great Leap Forward, I mean, the horrendous human catastrophe that occurred, and it occurred um, it's sort of the mirror image of the strength of China's state in keeping agriculture on the agenda. What can happen when a state that has, is run by a, an ideologically motivated party um, can so defy science to lead to the kind of um, famine um, where, and also a situation where food was being procured by the state while people starved around the procurement centers? Now, I know that there's a sense of self, there is a certain amount of self-censorship that still goes on in Chinese academia vis-a-vis -vis that, that episode. Um, but we can't talk about, you know, the lessons of food security, et cetera, without, I think, um, bringing that uh, onto the fore. And it's clear that lots of lessons have implicitly been learned from that disaster in China. Uh, but I was listening to Radio 4 this morning, and there was, there was just a, a reading from young Jinsheng's new book, Tombstone. And it's really quite striking. And the credibility of a book like this is weakened by not being able to make some reference to, to that episode. But overall, I think this book is absolutely a valuable, um, offers valuable insights into the potential for agricultural development in Africa. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, I think we would...
like to maximise the audience discussion. So I'll hand it over to the audience. Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions, two or three questions at a time. I'm standing up because I'm aware that you probably can't see us very well on that side. Um, so if you'd like to raise your, your hands. Um, one, two, and the gentleman uh, hello, Stephen Haggard. Can you speak up? Uh, I'd like to ask the panel what do you um, think is the potential of information technology to bring around increases of productivity um, and production and yield uh, in the African context. It's a set of technologies that's uh, leaping ahead in many African countries now that allows farmers to get better information, better advice, and better pricing for their products. It hasn't been used uh, very much in China. Do any of the panel feel that it offers uh, significant new uh, ingredient in this story? Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for keeping your question so concise. Um, yes. Yes. Um, Could you so introduce I, yourself? Excuse me? Could you please introduce yourself? Oh, yeah. So I'm uh, Jan and I'm uh, studying economics here. Um, so I was wondering um, if the different the the problem with African agri agriculture um, is in fact the same problems that are plagued by the the economy in in Af the economy in Africa as a whole, and um, if the specific problems with African agriculture is just no background noise to the, the the global the the overarching problem in African economies. Okay, thank you. Whether agricultural, the problems in agriculture reflect broader problems in the economy in Africa. And the final? Yes. Um, Africa, first of all, is the most tropical continent. Could you kindly introduce yourself? Okay. My name is Mahmoud Elmi. Um, Africa is the most tropical continent where you can find the possibility that you can harvest four times. And that has been neglected due to know-how technology. Um, going back to one of the lecturers said um, Africa is untapped. The agricultural sector is untapped. That means African agriculture is uh, divided in two parts. As uh, you mentioned, there is a 2% of irrigation and uh, low fertilizers. And uh, so Africa agriculture is uh, rain-fed, and some of them, they have got rivers where they can make irrigation. My question is focusing now. Can you give me a clear irrigation system of Africa where, where it is uh, only burn, uh, uh, close to the rivers, or they have got um, the ability to dig enough where the rivers are far and they establish um, agriculture where the rivers are not there. So there will be, they will have a possibility of fighting drought-resistant farming. Okay, thank you. Thank so questions about... Um changes required to an irrigation system in Africa. So if I had the first question was on the potential of information technology uh, to raise labor uh, 
uh, to raise agricultural productivity in Africa. Who would like to take that? Yeah, just for, Henry? I have no answer for that, but I, I except suggest that we should be very careful. I mean, Africa has been through, in the 60s was the radio. People said the radio is going to change African farming. <laughs> it didn't work out. And then they said, it was television, going to change African. You know, Ivory Coast had, every secondary school had a television, you know, because it was going to change things. It didn't happen. So I think we have to place technology in the larger policy framework. Uh, and, 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 and I hear one, from time to time one does hear stories about how it can change things. And, and I think those of my age, we remember there were some promises before of technologies that didn't work out, partly because they were isolated. They had nothing to do with the larger framework within which agricultural policy was made. Obviously, something IT is, is valuable, just as radio could have been valuable. But I think we should we have to place it in the context of uh, the, the framework within which uh, this knowledge is used for gradient change. Um, well, I, I, I don't know if I'm competent to answer this, except I'd just follow on uh, from Tandika's point, and I think one of the very useful things that the book shows is the enormous difficulties and costs of transporting agricultural commodities in Africa. So if uh, a farmer who's a long way from anywhere else uh, is able to look at up-to-date information uh, on, on his or her phone. And, I mean, how, how, how might that materially affect what, their planting decisions? Because, you know, planting seasons take time and prices change very rapidly. I mean, it's, it's just that the material conditions um, and the difficulties which the book uh, illuminates very well um, are not necessarily going to be resolved by technologies of that kind which are perhaps more directly useful to many farmers in, um, in, in say, Europe or, or, or North America uh, and who may have the capacity to store crops. I mean, you know, to, to, to play on day-to-day -day price fluctuations. Well, this is uh, very difficult to imagine this in sub-Saharan Africa for a long time. Okay, the second question was whether the, um, I've got two more questions to answer, which is the second question about the agriculture and the broader economy, and the third one about irrigation. Do you either of you want to take the bigger question? Or... Shall I just, for the moment, I'll go over on the question of irrigation. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the irrigation is right, because... Uh, the, percent, uh, the percentage of irrigation coverage in Africa is pretty low, and with existing with existing uh, uh, irrigation system, is largely concentrated in a few countries, uh, very few countries. But actually, the most sub-Saharan African, African countries like irrigation. But irrigation is not about technology itself, and from my perspective, irrigation is about a package of problems. And uh, for instance, you have a problem of capital. And uh, for, for China, as I said, for China, uh, with a lack of capital, and to transform and to substitute uh, capital by using labor was the major policy. And that means the Chinese, Chinese farmers were organized by the state over the beginning of 20, 30 years, from 50s to 60s to 70s, 30 years. A complete organized 
that to, to contribute the labor to build the irrigation. So if you look for the data, and, uh, and towards the end of the 1970s, almost uh, all irrigation system was already built up. So this means we today still using uh, almost all irrigation built before 1970s and largely contributed by the labor. So this is when I'm saying that irrigation is not about the technology where you bring the water from the river, you know. This is about the, 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 the whole package, how the state, you know, how the state and the society to formulate kind of what I call consensus, you know, what are called a lot of complicated issues. Whether you could go, today, nothing is not possible because you have to buy the labor, so you have to pay for the labor, completely in the cost of the market, that, uh, which makes extremely difficult for most cash-trapped African countries back to rely on the external donors to provide this public investment, what I can see. And then within the donor regime, and there's a big debate whether money should be spent on the social protection programs. For instance, the spend on, on education and health and uh, gender, all these programs, not spend on irrigation and all other kind of infrastructure. So, and African is trapped. Most African countries are trapped by this kind of cash, what I call cash-trapped problem, and dependence on external support, and this complicated visual circle in terms of irrigation. And this person that has been working in African countries touches this issue very clearly. That is no kind of, it's very difficult for the parliament in any country to go through the priority to see, let us use the money to build irrigation. And all different interest groups come to see education is important, and all NGO around in Africa say this is important, so you can't do it. You know, it's can't do it, you have to let us go for this, yeah. Okay. Um, questions? Yeah, question over here. Um, question here and question there. Thank you. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay. Uh, I'll take four and then we'll yes. throw them all in. Hello. My name is Daniel Pflege and I'm from LLC. Um, um, what I want to ask is I recently read that there's a possibility, I mean, I think this was done in rural India, where they provided, I mean, uh, vouchers for fertilizers. I mean, uh, uh, immediately after, after the crops had been, uh, basically after the farming season. And I was wondering, I mean, looking at the low numbers of, I mean, and utilization of fertilizers in Africa and uh, the high success rate, according to studies in places like India, where that would not be at least a partial solution to the problem that is found in Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you. My name is Gabi Hesselbein. We have already heard that there are a number of really different factors that contribute to agricultural productivity. We, it was mentioned the state, it was mentioned the bureaucracy, it was mentioned property rights. But from my own research on African farming, I have the impression that there is a disconnection between the farmers and the bureaucracy. They have basically very little to do with each other, although some countries are exceptions. Now, not only Chinese history, but European history, other Asian history, Latin American history shows that farmers do not change their productivity unless they get a certain input. They need a change of technology and a change of, t of tools, uh, an introduction of, of um, fertilizers that were not available before, etc. So without input, farmers' families do not change their productivity. 
Therefore, I would like to know what China actually do to outreach to the individual farmer families and to incentivize them to change their productivity, because that, I think, might be a lesson very valuable for uh, okay, not you. so much developed countries. Yeah, so what did the state do to create the incentives uh, to encourage farmers to increase productivity? So, uh, unfortunately, my question actually follows on the ladies. Um, <laughs> is, uh, thank you. Um, sorry, my name is Karim Palmieri. I'm uh, now at LSE. Uh, just left Morocco uh, working for the OCP. Um, I, my, my first part of my question in terms of uh, the inputs for uh, fertilizers uh, is there a space for using um, information technology, both in terms of mobile phones? Uh, I know there's sort of um, land mapping uh, technology that's been put in place to better target use of fertilizer and distribution. Um, and my second question, which is slightly more important, is obviously in China, uh, it's sort of one state, and you, have, you can have a sort of relatively unified law. Um, at what level... Uh, would you be able to do that in the various African countries uh, to actually have a single policy, get information to farmers, um, to actually bring them together uh, and have sort of more consolidated efforts as opposed to individual actions? Okay. And the last question. Uh, yeah. Yes. Benedetta Rossi from the Center of West African Studies of the University of Birmingham. Um, in terms of the relationship between the state and agriculture in Africa, I think it is particularly useful to uh, think in a more historicized, to take a more historical perspective and also a perspective that nuances more than the panel has done. I haven't had the pleasure to read the book yet, but uh, that the panel has done between different African regions. I mean, if we... Because then one thinks about what, what are we talking about when we talk about the African state. And if we think about the whole of the 19th century in the region that today is northern Nigeria, the, the historians call the central Sudan, but anyway, the interior of the Sahel, there was the Sokoto Caliphate. And within the Sokoto Caliphate, the state definitely had a very strong hand in organizing agriculture. There were state-held plantations mined by slaves, for example, that used to produce food and agriculture, and it was directed by the state, and we have plenty of data about this. If we look at what was happening, however, on the coast at the same time, we had the transition from the slave trade to export agricultural products, which were controlled in part by European powers at the time, former, which first had used to trade slaves and then started trading palm oil. When we move into the 20th century, we move into a colonial situation where it's a completely different type of state. So if you take northern Nigeria, instead of having the Sokoto Caliphate directing its own plantations through emirates and through slave labor, then we start having a colonial state that has very different interests. And after independence, we start having a developmentalist regime where, again, African states... If, if we take the example of Niger, for example, there were a number of industries, and Niger is peculiar, but there were a number of industries that were all about agricultural products and the transformation of agricultural products. And they all fell with the liberalization policies that were pushed by international aid donors and organizations. 
So here we're looking at very different aspects of the state, but certainly when we found strong African states historically, such as the Sokoto Caliphate, we also found a heavy hand into the management of agricultural policy and agricultural labor. So, thanks. Okay, thank you. Um, so, panel, your comments, please, and questions. You start. Uh, well, I'll, I'll try to keep this brief and really only answer what I feel uh, confident about answering. I mean, earlier on, um, somebody asked uh, whether these much mooted uh, problems of African agriculture are simply a reflection of problems of African economies more generally. Now, that wasn't pursued, but we would need to know what you think those problems are so that we could we could fix on that but there is a definite and powerful ideological current of doom and gloom about Africa um, that I've described as coming down in the end to saying well the problem the problems are Af of Africa are because it's Africa you know so it does actually is a kind of a circular thing so Africa is seen as you know, the repository or the locus of all these, um, the most inefficient markets, the most corrupt governments, the most uh, inhospitable forms of nature, whatever it is. So I don't know if that was the direction you were pointing. Oh, it was. Okay. So I, I answered by accurate anticipation. Okay. Um, and that connects with the question that was just asked. I mean, I think... Um, We've only had a few minutes each, so it's not enough to do justice to, um, you know, all the different uh, stories and trajectories of, of modern African history before colonialism, during colonialism, and uh, since. I mean, I think some of the themes are arising are those Tanduka and I have tried to address in our own, in our own work, at least in setting up... Um, conceptual framework for understanding all these differences and, and varieties of, of experience. So, I mean, I, I, I take your point. But it is interesting, and maybe Xiaoyun would respond to this, that the, the book, perhaps because of its very nature, tends to give a general picture of African agriculture. Um, there are some examples in the book, but they tend not to be, on the whole, examples that show exceptions or show variation, which I understand your, uh, your, your question wanted to, uh, to highlight. Um, so I think that's enough from me. Okay, I'll, I'll hand over to Xiaoyun. Yeah. I, I, like uh, I like just to respond to a number of questions earlier on this time. This wrong. The first one is... Uh, water, uh, fertilized water in India. And, uh, and actually the, the, the fertilized water system has, has, been trans, uh, has been introduced to Africa, particularly for many East African countries by the World Bank. And, uh, and my finding, and I, have, I have actually studied, and my finding was, it's interesting, because uh, uh, if you look for the uh, uh, fertilized water, and, uh, and for the World Bank project, you know, we're supposed to give it to poor people, very poor people. And, uh, and then you find, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that um, without water, uh, it is, you know, 
fertilizer water doesn't work. And uh, you cannot guarantee, you cannot guarantee the water, you have to really completely rely on the rain calm, you know. And, um, and that gives uncertainty, you know. And you have to completely uh, uh, do it by photo on the ring when they have small ring raising and a big ring raising coming, and for, the, for, the, for, for all kinds of maize growing. In East African countries, they're growing a lot of maize wugali. And, uh, and then, by doing this, and poor farmers found if they could sell in a cheaper price uh, as fertilizer, and they get much more certain they can use that money to buy food, then just, they, they just wait to get fertilizer, which is not useful to fertilize the field, which was no, no rain and no, uh, fertil- uh, no uh, irrigation. It's very interesting dynamic comes for this very controversial program called Fertilized Water Program. So that indicating very clearly that what I've, I'm quite much um, some, some sort of pro-state in terms of agriculture. And we back to the issue, as you, you raised, you earlier raised the issue that uh, agriculture is not like industry. So agriculture is a complicated sector, it's an interesting sector, which deserve, which deserve kind of protection and uh, public investment. So this means that this public water system is a complete market, you know, complete going to the market and we give you the subsidy and you're going to buy the fertilizer and fertilizer provided by the traders and the things and then you find, you know, and they would just use not for different purposes, you know, nothing for power reduction, nothing for improved yield. They will not do improved yield, they will make all these transactions and trading for this water ticket. And then, Interesting that local government and the government have to issue a new regulations that this is illegal. So if, if somebody trade the water's ticket, it's illegal, and you put in the trials. And that in, increased transac- high transaction costs to managing these programs. So that is interesting, I would say, very controversial. Secondly, I would say that you're right for the incentive for the agriculture because uh, Mm. And I'd like to also respond earlier, uh, 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 Henry mentioned a uh, number of issues which I have to um, uh, remind the uh, um, reader that it's not, this book is not about Chinese agriculture as a whole. Because the book was actually confined with the context of the relevance, possible relevance, a potential relevance which I'd be very cautious to see might not be relevant to the African, increasing interest in the African. Therefore, what books about why agriculture was successful and what problem from that successful processes. And uh, today's problem for migration, for land grabbing, for many, many issues, for everything are consequences of this process and the consequences, negative consequences of these successful processes. So the issue here is that whether African message here was whether African would follow similar process to reach the success, and they probably African need to look carefully, look very seriously about the consequences from this process. So that is the issues we're going to see. But uh, those problems like uh, talk about the labor, talk about labor, talk about um, land issues today, and uh, we will talk about book, talk about mainly during the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, but not today. Today's Chinese agricultural rural areas is absolutely not relevant to, 
to to Africans because you know this is a completely different, um, highly subsidized agriculture, and the percentage of subsidies reached very high level, and it's almost reached to the European and the American status for the highly subsidized agriculture. So World Bank put China into the subsidized agricultural state. And no longer in the agriculture based state. You know, this is wrong. You know, today's Chinese agriculture is highly subsidized. Without subsidy, no, nobody will go to farming. Yeah. And the farmers are not interested in doing any farming without subsidy. So these are the things we have to draw our attention, you know, when we reach to this level, you know, for this. Yeah. Okay, um, so before I take a final round of questions, and, and Tadika, yeah. James. Yeah, it's a question of subsidy. It's interesting, was in, in, in your text somewhere, you suggest that. Um, Basically, you're saying at one point there's a, a, a phase of primitive accumulation when the state is extracting surplus uh, from, from the countryside, and, 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 and you, exp- you elaborate that by saying that it was that's how the irrigation infrastructure was created. That, was, uh, that involves an element of coercion. And many African countries now um, are turning democratic. And for some historical reasons, it's been very difficult in Africa. Coercion has been difficult in the countryside. And, and some of us don't want it anyway. We don't want the coercion. So we, so we are now, um, so we have to think of a societies which are where there's no coercion. And we want to create, uh, we want agriculture to contribute to industrialization. And for that to happen, uh, industry must support agriculture to increase its productivity. So that's, that's the trick. Now, so uh, forget about the element of coercion and start from there. And that's Africa's headache. Uh, most of the solutions suggested for Africa involve, suggest coercion. Okay. Whether, you know, the American way, which is slavery, which we cannot have, <laughs> or the, you know, the, uh, the Chinese version or the Stalinist version, all those versions involve coercion. Okay. And we are saying we don't want that. Uh, and, 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 and the simple game of incentives is not enough either, you know, of simply in, I mean, uh, monetary incentives well done type. So we have to think of, you know, to really think of uh, agriculture run by independent, you know, so smallholders, independent smallholders, and how do you find, how do you produce a surplus for industrialization? Um, it's been done elsewhere, I think, but I think that the, 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 what I got from the book was, in a way, uh, disturbing because it, there is an, an acceptance. There's a statement was something like, um, at certain levels of of, um, of, of of development, you have to tax agriculture to produce the surplus necessary for industrialization, and then after a certain stage, then you reverse subsidization or you, you subsidize agriculture. And I find politically difficult to see how. That phase in Africa, the first one of, of, sort of primitive accumulation, will take place in Africa. Um, quick response here from Shiaoyun. I think this is very important because, uh, you know, and I like to just draw your attention by seeing that uh, kind of a uh, process. And there are two ways doing this. One is what we call mobilized by the state. And it's not possible to mobilize this kind of accumulation by the state currently any country, like in China, it's not possible. In, in African countries, more democratic, free elected countries, it's not possible. Even not possible in China. No, nobody will listen to the state 
calls today to see I'm going to work without paid. So it's not possible. But in Africa, what I'm going to, talk, I'm going to as the book talk about accumulation in, more, in, in terms of what I call might be at the community level, Community, community level accumulation is very possible because if you look for the areas where you know people live, you know they could work together to 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 to, to build small road and to, be, to build small called community-based uh, irrigation system is still possible. That is also part of the accumulation process that gives a different story and different complete different different scenario and within the political and the social context of the African countries. So, great, thank you. And final. Yeah. Very quickly, James, yeah. I'd like to just take a couple of more sure. questions. No, let me just, I just want to make a comment on this last issue related to the state, what the state can and can't do. And, I mean, the remarkable thing in sub-Saharan Africa is the extent to which states had a very short time after independence, after decolonization, before the rug was pulled out from, from, from under... Uh, uh, under states in, in relationship to structural adjustment, rollback of the state, etc. But I think that there are plenty of examples where, and, and Rwanda is one of them. Okay, no, you don't. I mean, perhaps the most coercive of the uh, uh, of the examples. But I'm not referring to it as as much the coercion as a concerted state attention to agriculture that creates incentives for business to work with smallholders and begin to gain to, to introduce some of the productivity gains and I think there's a there's there's a lot to be learned from from that lesson and that's the kind of level at which uh, the state can work as well with with um, community cooperatives and the type of thing that uh, Lias, Liu Xiao, Li Xiao Yun was saying talking about right. I'm going to take two more questions gentlemen here yeah so those two in the last ones. And we will be having a reception afterwards on the fourth floor Hi. Um, where you can talk freely also with the panelists. Thank you. Hi, my name is Hassan Turinj. I'm an academic fellow at the University of Oxford. Um, maybe we can turn the question uh, around and ask what China can learn from Africa uh, in terms of uh, um, agriculture. Uh, perhaps, first of all, just two small ones. One, don't get to be uh, colonized by the West. And the second, the people who are advocating neoliberalism and privatization on you actually don't see what's going on in common agricultural policy, heavily subsidized by the American economy. So learn from this very well. Thank you. So what can China learn from Africa and the issue about um, liberalization? Yeah. My name is Richard Carey. Um, I worked for a long time with the Development Assistance Committee, so I saw the donor side of all this. And my question is for, and I, I contributed the foreword to this book, so I'm <laughs> party to this very ambitious, uh, uh, great enterprise. My question is for Tandika. You're saying that the state in Africa does not have a clear idea of the role of agriculture in the development process, hasn't and secondly, you're raising a question about the capacity uh, for the learning process to really take hold in Africa. So the question is, how do you assess that right at this moment? I mean, we have the, the, Africa, the, um, the Agricultural African Development Program, the CADEP, agreed in 2003. 
There was supposed to be a meeting this week of African trade and agricultural ministers in Addis Ababa. It was cancelled last week by the African Union because not enough agriculture ministers were going to show up. So could you tell us, uh, Tandika, how you assess this uh, question of, of how the state at this moment can lead the agricultural development okay. process? Thank you very much. So we've got two questions about what can China learn from Africa and how do you get the state in Africa to prioritise um, agricultural development? So I'm going to quickly ask Shayun to briefly give an answer and then Tandika and then we'll close. So I, I think you have... Uh, you have raised interesting question, calling this uh, mutual learning. And I, I think for the my for my experiences over the last few years in working in Africa, I found that um, uh, actually the African you could you could really find a very developed uh, export agricultural export agriculture uh, system. If you look for the flour exports in uh, Kenya, and also cashew nut pr production associations in Tanzania, all those countries, you know, looking for cash crop, but I still use cash crop, I'm sorry for this, you know, cash crop means just selling for money, not for food. And you see the Chinese farmers, you know, and I think left behind now, organizing self-help self <coughs> structure, because we so much rely on the state for historically, traditionally, you know, and we rely on the state to solve these big problems. Things from that perspective, and the, and the marketization and liberalization start in 1980s. Actually, you know, you see positive result coming up from recent years. Many various sectors, particularly for like the cash crop sector. So now we see mm, that is really the area. And also the second area, it's very inter interesting technologically, is the organic agriculture. You know, organic agriculture starting many African countries. And now I would see in the future, you know, now combines clearly for the ecological conditions and the new market, I call new market, uh, and the new crops and the new product for the ag agriculture. So China would share a lot because our agriculture is highly polluted. Uh, we have a lot of problems, you know, all those things. And I, you know, I didn't really mention this uh, in my presentation, but uh, those problems associated from this successful story over the last 30 years. And, uh, you know, we could certainly share with African to see the future, future for this. Yeah. Thank you very much. And Tadika, the last word. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I, I think we have, to, we have to remember that at independence, different African countries had a view of what was the agrarian question. In Ivory Coast, it was how do you make, how do you make the new black bourgeoisie, the agrarian bourgeoisie, have access to labor, which was not allowed under colonial rule. In Ghana, was how do you make use of the cocoa surpluses that was blocked up. In, in Zimbabwe, it was land reform and so on. So there were different agrarian questions in different parts of Africa. The issue today is figure out what do African governments think is the, is the problem in each specific country. If you take, I'm from Malawi, where uh, the food question became the main issue. And being a, 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 a new democracy, all governments in Malawi, since they knew that they must provide fertilizer to get, food, to get food produced, that became the issue politically within that country. Unfortunately, some of these international debates coming from outside come up with a one big question for all African countries. They don't go to each specific country and say, what, is the, what does that country and the politics of that country think is the main issue? And so we get it wrong because we, you know, we come, somebody said it's, it's maybe growing this and then comes the main issue. We have to identify what does the political um, structure of that particular country think is the main issue. 
Only then do you get the political support that you, is required for, for transformation. Okay, thank you very much for those very um, brief and poignant answers. And I'd like to finish here, so thank you to our panellists, and uh, especially to Professor Li Xiaoyun. And if you would like to get a copy of his book, there are leaflets available. And if you'd like to speak to him or any of the panellists further, we'll have a reception on the fourth floor in the old building. Thank you.